There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Show with Packmaster Ralph Tobasham, MD. Katie Harms. Catherine Brandt. Andy Brandt Bernard. Cassie Schrader. We'll be right back. Tons of guests this hour. Should be a very interesting hour. Up next, Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive continues to grow. They think it's because of their upfront pricing, no haggle or hassle sales experience, and working with one person from start to finish. I think we all know it's because of the loyal podcast listeners. I've said it a million times before. I won't endorse a company that I don't believe in, and Walzer's no exception. I've bought several cars from them, as has my family. I know what you're thinking. Tommy got some special deal. Well, the truth is we paid the Walzer best price just like everyone else. Walzer will sell about 35,000 cars this year, and you can't do that if your prices aren't great. Do yourself a favor. When it's time to shop for a new or used car, go to walzer.com and give them a shot. You won't be sorry. Walzer Automotive Group. Walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and <laughs> it's gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. I like it. Sympathy for the devil. Ah, Take that home with you. Tom Bernard Show, ladies and gentlemen. We're back, hour two, with Dr. and Dr. Uh, what is wrong with you? Nothing, I'm just kind of floating <laughs> through the world right and now. And our guest is on hold. Peter is on hold? Yes, I Excellent. just got a note. Peter, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing there? Not too bad. Now, Peter Vronsky is with us, oh. widely considered an expert in this specific field of history and has been featured on True Tri- uh, Crime Podcast, 
throughout the summer in anticipation of the publication of Sons of Cain, the book, Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. Peter, how did you get involved with this whole project in the first place? This is place? all scary stuff. It is scary <laughs> stuff, exactly. How, how did you get involved in the beginning? Well, you know, I was 23 years old, 1979, and I randomly encountered a serial killer fleeing a hotel I was trying to check into, um, in which he had uh, hmm. killed two women, severed their heads, set their torsos on, on, on fire, and uh, we collided for, you know, something like 10 seconds uh, down in the lobby uh, as he was coming off the elevator and I was trying to get on. And, and from that moment on, uh, as I slowly learned what happened upstairs, I, I've, I've been just fascinated with, you know, where these monsters essentially come from. It is a fascinating subject. Why would you want to go out and start yeah. killing people you don't even know and killing as many people as you can? Yeah. What drives it, Peter? Do, you, do, do we know? We do. Um, it's an addiction. Um, you know, lots of people do the most strangest things when they're addicted, um, and this is just one addiction among many. Mm-hmm. Um, the addiction is, is kind of sparked very early in their childhood, and it's about uh, kind of regaining control over their own lives and over around people around them um, and trying to improve on the fantasy. Um, you know, serial killers, they're formed very early age, uh, you know, as, as early so as some of them as five years old. So somewhere between five and 14, they become obsessed with these fantasies. But often they won't act them out until around the average age of 28. You know, 28, early yeah. 30s is when, you know, serial killers start. It is so amazing. Once they've acted out, uh, it's very hard, you know, if you act out on a fantasy and, and you suddenly realize that the you know, reality is nothing like the fantasy, it's very hard to go back to that comfort of that fantasy. And, and, and so now they're addicted on trying to realize that fantasy into reality. Yeah. And, and so you get that cyclic kind of serial dynamic. You know, it's interesting, Peter, you, you talk about, we're talking to Peter Vronsky about his book, Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. I did hear several years ago an interview, I think it was with one of uh, Ted Bundy's parents, I think his mother, I think, I'm not sure. But she talked about that very thing, Peter, that uh, when when Ted was four years old, she woke up one night and Ted was standing over her with an axe. And he was only four years old. It's like, good God. That's right. His, his aunt. Oh, his aunt. Um, That's who it was. Okay. Was At night, he was putting knives into her bed. He kind of lifted up her covers and he put these knives around her in this bed. Um, and, and, and that's him, again, testing out his sense of control. Yeah. Uh, you'll see that often serial killers, when they're, you know, adolescents and teens, they'll commit other crimes, like, for example, fetish burglaries, where they'll break into a house and they'll steal women's garments, or they'll just stand over a person as they sleep, maybe with a knife in hand, but they won't actually do anything. And and that is them testing the limits of their fantasy. Um, And and so gradually they start escalating. And Ted Bundy is an excellent example of that. You know, he describes how as a kid he used to let the air 
out of the tires of, of, of women um, just to see what they would do, just to get a sense of control over them without actually doing anything about it. He still didn't formulate his ultimate fantasy, but he's taking it out on these test runs um, on the road. It is What a story. I didn't, look, I grew up in a very rough neighborhood and all the rest of it, but I had never heard, I, did, did anybody hear, well, obviously throughout history, the, the law enforcement has and lawyers have and things like that, but I didn't even hear the term serial killer until I was probably, I God, when, like 1960, something like that? Is that, is that when it came to the... Oh, much later than that. Oh, it's later than that. Okay. Um, in fact, when I met my, when I met, you know, what I call my first serial killer, mm-hmm. uh, this was 1979, and oh, the term God. still had not been popularly coined. 79. Uh, that okay. term, you begin, yeah, you begin to see it in May of 1981, um, and it's used in the New York Times to describe Wayne Williams, the Atlanta child. Killer. Right. Right. Uh, you know, cops were used. In, you know, in, in the law enforcement community. Mm-hmm. But there was no such thing as serial killer books, serial killer movies. Um, you know, they were, other terms were used. Uh, recreational killers, stranger on stranger killers, psycho killers. But that term, serial killer, is it's a very new term in our language. There's an what? interesting Sorry. tool online called Ngrams which is basically you can put a term in and Google searches every book ever made basically in their library and tells you how often the word that you put in was used in the books of the time and i put in the term serial killer and apparently the first time it was used was 1980 Hmm. but yeah it exploded in 1989 uh it went from something that you'd see in maybe one in a million books to you know today is you just see it constantly. Right. So, I, so what happened? You know, when we kind of the ultimate serial killer, Ted Bundy, um, you know, Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, um, that book still doesn't use the term serial killer. Oh, really? Right, Ted Bundy. And, and her book came out 1980. So that's right there on you the go. cusp there. Is there any record of any, any child or adolescent or 20-something-year-old that got help and uh, that had these tendencies or wants and, and well, somebody you know, stopped them? The first serial killer, um, you know, fitting the kind of the FBI description, current description, which is two or more victims in separate incidences, mm-hmm. no longer three, um, is a child, 14-year-old uh, adolescent, Jesse Pomeroy in Boston. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's 1870s. That's, that's way before uh, Jack the Ripper. And, and, and certainly way before who people say is the first American serial killer, um, you know, H.H. H. Holmes in Chicago. Oh, yeah. This is, you know, he precedes, Jesse Pomeroy precedes Holmes by decades. It is amazing. Peter, I, by the way, I did the arithmetic. 18, 1874 is the exact uh, year. 1874. I just, it's bad news for me, actually, because I just did the, uh, the math. I did the arithmetic, the subtraction. Mm-hmm. In 1980, I was 28 years old. It's <laughs> <laughs> not good news for me. <laughs> so right when the, word became, the words became famous, I was actually 28, which you said is about uh, 
the wheelhouse for serial killers, is it, right? Yeah, that's the statistic. <laughs> that's terrible. The year I turned 28, I serial a, killer. Yeah, when Ted Bundy was active in Utah, I was a medical student at the University of Utah. Oh, yeah. And I'm just try, I'm trying to think back as what word they used because they did talk about uh, these, these – they did talk about him because he hadn't been identified. But they did talk about these uh, multiple murders, these women that were discovered. And I, I'm just – what word would they, would they have used? They used – Often you heard pattern serial killer, uh, sorry, pattern killer, mm-hmm. um, multiple killer. Oh, okay. They even used the word mass killer, although now we have oh, a yeah. 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 mass killer. Yep. Mass killer, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, mostly 28-year-old males. I, I assume there are some female serial killers. Are there or not? Oh, a lot. Mm-hmm. That's what a I lot? thought. Yeah. Statistically, according to one study. I'm sorry, how many? We just don't recognize female serial killers as easily as males. You know, mm-hmm. um, female serial killers are called the quiet killers because often they're, they're, they're killing in places where, you know, people die. Hospitals, um, nursing homes, and, 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 and so oh, forth. Oh, yeah. Uh, so who, they're hard to spot. Who was the one in Florida that... Um, Eileen Werner. Yes. He's... She's the one who, Eileen Wernis is kind of the one that breaks the mold because, you know, she's killing strangers. We often associate um, female serial killers with killing their intimates, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their husband, their boyfriend, their own children, um, other family members and so forth. But Eileen Wernis is, is kind of like a male serial killer. She's, she's stalking, you know, these male victims. And, and they're all strangers to her, and she's using a handgun. Um, you know, statistically, women either smother their, their victim, you know, with a pillow, or they use some kind of poison or overdose of a medicine and, and, and so forth. So that's another reason they're called, um, you know, the, the, the kind of quiet serial killers, because they usually leave the victim where the victim died. They don't leave victims in a ditch um, that... You know, worries a community and, and alarms a community. They're invisible in that way. Peter, you, you spoke to uh, the fact that these people have a fantasy. And, and is that fantasy the violence, or is that fantasy just the the passing of, or some, of someone dying? What, what, or is it different? Well, the fantasy is triggered. Um, we believe the fantasy is triggered in childhood through some kind of trauma. And, and, and so the child now loses a sense of control and retires, retreats into this fantasy of revenge and control. Hmm. And, and, and then if it starts as early as five, of course, they're going to go through puberty later. And, and so once they hit that puberty age, um, they begin to sexualize that fantasy oh, of, of yeah. again, control and, and revenge. But essentially... Uh, most serial killing, including those by, by females, is about um, control and dominance and, and regaining that sense of control over around people around you. It's control and possession. Um, that's, that's the basic motive for most sexual serial killers. That is, amazes me. That, that So basically, in a way, you could say, Peter, not you personally, but the, the average person out there could say that many serial killers are 
driven to serial killing because of religious beliefs of their parents or their family or something like that. Uh, kind of a la Ed Gein or Ed Gein. I guess his name was actually Ed Gein. But his mother pre- preached to him every day how filthy women were and he should never be involved with women. And it was her religious belief that uh, that men should not get involved with women until they're married and all, all that. That's what drove him apparently to become a serial killer, correct? Well, it contributed to it. You, you know, it's always a cocktail of things. Yeah, okay. Um, it, it's never one single thing, but certainly her vision of, of women as a threat, as, as something um, that is looked down upon or, or condemned in some way, shapes that, that fantasy. Um, but we've never found, um, you know, the same thing. Because you have, uh, you know, millions of kids every year are traumatized. But mm-hmm. we don't have millions of serial killers. So we still have yeah. not figured out that one X factor. What is it um, that, that, you know, here you have a thousand traumatized kids, and some of them uh, may become productive members of society. Some may be, um, you know, damaged individuals in other ways, but only a few will become, a very rare few, will become serial killers. So what is it about, you know, them? Um, and we still have not found that X factor. And, and, and so as I write in Sons of Cain, I think it's too early for us just to write off, um, you know, old-fashioned biblical evil right, as possibly right. one of the explanations. That's exactly what I was talking about. Peter, you're a very smart guy. Peter Vronsky, V-R-O-N-S-K-Y. The book is called Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. And I found out right when the word serial killer were being used, I had just turned 28. That's great <laughs> news. That's great news for me, Peter. Peter, you're a great guest. Thanks for your time Thanks today, Thanks for having sir. me on. Absolutely, sir. Peter Vronsky, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, he's, uh, he's very passionate about this. But don't you think that most of these crimes like this are driven by religious beliefs of someone, your grandmother, your grandfather, mother, dad, whatever? There's a lot of that stuff that goes on. Well, according to him, not so much as you'd think. Well, the King of Jordan, uh, which we've already talked about, hates these these radical Islamists because he said they've stolen his religion to use it to kill people. Mm-hmm. And they have, right? I mean, they have. There's no doubt about yeah. it. He says Islam is a beautiful religion, but they've bastardized it and used it to uh, kill people. It's unbelievable. Well, I think a lot of um, serial killers, too, there's a religious aspect because it gives yeah. them, they have a God complex, that they have control uh, yeah, over yeah, your yeah. life, whether you're going to live or not. That makes sense. And that's part of the thrill that they get. It's not actual killing. It's watching them have that power to do, you know, what's, take your life. Yeah. What's the connection between serial killers and mass killers? These kids that are going into schools is I wonder. Oh yeah, Jesus. if there's oh, a yeah, there's a different. God complex there too as well. I wonder yeah. how much there is similar trauma or similar control that you were talking about mm-hmm. being able to control taking people out only in a more it's such a complex deal as opposed to yeah it's such a complex topic it it's hard to say because each case is so different. We shall be right back, Tom Bernard Show. It's Tom here to tell you how easy it was for me to hit my goal of 92.5-pound weight loss at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I started in March, and in just over five months, I learned about clean eating, and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods. 
I'm now on the reset phase, and then on to the Nutrimost Forever Maintenance Program, which I'll be talking about more in the weeks to come. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did. Attend the Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner. It's on Monday, September 17th, 6.30 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. I'll see you there. Those extra pounds melt away really fast with this easy program. Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutrimost helped me change my life. And they can help you, too. I guarantee you that. Register for the Nutrimost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner. It is on September 17th. Call 763-333-7337. That is 763-333-7337. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the guaranteed offer program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. Oh, there you go. Losing my religion. Huh? Do you ever oh, stump him? Huh? Do you ever stump him? Every oh. once in a while. Tom? Tom? With the stump? very often. Yeah. Once in a while, yeah. Once in a while, it's true. My goal is to get Andy to sing. So it's yes, Andy. Andy, Andy what was it? Walk like an Egyptian? Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah. Walk that was like the best. Egyptian. <laughs> I made my day. <laughs> Um, no, but speaking of serial killers, on Thursday we're going to have Jeff Mudgett back. Love him. To talk about American Ripper. He is, I want to say, the great, great, great grandson of H.H. H. Holmes. Right. Oh, and his show must be yeah. coming back. No. No, it's not. Oh, they, it's didn't, not they wouldn't renew him. Really? Oh. Um, but he has a lot of information after oh, the show. So okay. he's going to, it's like kind of like after the show type okay. of exclusive info that he's got. So. Yeah, he's a great guest. Really good guest. I yeah. love that show. That show was very interesting. Yes. I mean, to, to think that H.H. H. Holmes could be Jack the Ripper right. yeah. is... A very big step on finding out who actually Jack the River was, and he's the evidence he has is very compelling. Mm-hmm. And um, I wouldn't the when you look at the crimes that H. H. Holmes committed, I wouldn't put it past him that he was Jack the Ripper. No, no he went to England is, at that very time. Yeah, he was in England. Extra psycho. Then. And it yeah. seems like all of his um, killings that he did, it was a progression. Like he was honing his craft. So each time there was a case, yeah. it was like progressively got to the point where he had the murder castle in Chicago during the World's Fair. Yeah, he was like gassing people in he this was like, place and you uh, know, taking bodies apart. Yeah. Yeah. And and stuff like that. So it was like he was trying to through. And that's what I was trying to get at with mm-hmm. what is the fantasy? Is the fantasy yeah. the violence? Is the fantasy just getting control and or is it just you know, what is what are the mechanics? Because he did say that when the people finally act and do kill somebody, it is not the same as the fantasy. Well, what do you mean it's not the same? 
I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't. What well, part of it isn't the same? It's too messy. Uh, did you use the wrong technique? But what sounds to me like the, with the uh, uh, Holmes that he was m- refining what he was doing so that it got closer to what his fantasy was, his ideal death or his ideal control or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, I mean, a lot. there's been a lot of cases with serial killers that that's exactly what they do. They can see a progression in their killings to, you know, and usually they say they start off killing animals, you mm-hmm. know, and it could be which simply is just shooting yeah. a BB gun at them. Right. And killing Tom, them. you had right. a dog that got his head Herbie. cut cut off right in your neighborhood did you ever all of a sudden have a rash of murders in your neighborhood after that I mean, like, well, yeah, no, but I mean, mean, like a serial killer. Uh, no, because somebody would do something like that together. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if there there was a connection between those murders? Well, they, happen in yeah, torturing animals is supposed to be a really early sign that your kids got big well, they, time yeah, troubles. Absolutely. One of the local ones that we had here in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, was the Weepy Voice Killer. Wait, don't talk, <laughs> just listen. Um, I remember him. He, yeah, Good and God. and I when because Dave interviewed for that. Um, there's really no books or anything written on that case. Um, he interviewed no. Don Allen for True Crime Tuesday. Yep, and. Um, I noticed something when they were talking about and listening to all the documentaries and stuff. It almost seemed like, because um, I guess he, what was his name? Something Stefani. Um, that Gwen. Was Gwen Stefani. <laughs> no, it wasn't Gwen. It was like, was it, it Stephen Stefani? Or? It was Paul Michael Stefani. Paul, Paul Michael, Michael Stefani. Okay. There you go. Um, he grew up in a very religious home. There you go. Like extremely religious. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, the color red must have triggered him because of all of his victims, they all wore red. And he even mm. mentioned that one of the phone calls to 911. If they wore red and you find him dead, it was probably me. And it almost seemed like he was using 911 as a confessional booth. Don't well, talk, after, just listen. After he killed the I'll second girl, he called the cops and said, God damn, will you find me? I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Yeah, yeah. you got to find so, the YouTube, the, his voice. Oh, his it's voice so is so yeah. creepy. It's on YouTube. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> so if, so if, if, I, if a serial killer is trying to uh, overcome somebody, and they give him a knife in the groin or some such thing. You think that takes the edge off the fantasy? No. You, no. They all, always kill them. So is there no cure for this? That's what Catherine was trying probably to get not. to. I would yeah. argue there, no. If anybody short, short circuit this, you know, has anyone been saved when they're when they're 10 or they're 15 or some such right. thing? When they see them mutilating animals, is there psychotherapy that could have short circuit this? Or is the fact that our only goal, is, our only solution as a society is to just sort of like... Well, a good show to watch is Dexter. I don't know if you ever watched Dexter, yeah, but that's basically what it's about. He is he was he was traumatized as a child. His mother was murdered in front of him with a chainsaw. So she was cut apart. That's a murder. Yeah, and um so it traumatized him and he was adopted by the police officer that found him with his mother. And uh the whole show he he oh, be- develops and becomes a serial a serial killer, but he has but he only, More, he's got a yeah. conscience and he's moral. So what is he only his, murders bad guys? So he mm. goes after. It's almost mm. kind of like a vigilante yep. type of serial killer. So that would be a good show to watch because the the knowing the process of a serial killer and how he works, like he needs to kill, but he 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 found a way to um, I don't know direct that urge. But is Dexter, you know, just based on 
it's a, 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 a just a show or is it actually yeah, like I, I, I don't know this is I don't know if, what we know I don't know that we're ever going to know that there's actually a person like that yeah, yeah, but what, yeah I, I, I know I can't I can't I watch not. that because this person's out you there big and every baby. and every time he just does this I think of his mother being murdered with a chainsaw I mean I, I, that's something that I just cannot no think happening I cannot yeah. no but that's, that's too much it, don't talk was, just listen oh. I'm sorry what I did to Compton I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every time. I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Woo! So did they did they lock him up or did he kill himself? I don't remember. He got locked up and he died in prison from skin cancer. I oh, think it is was. that right? Yeah. From skin cancer. I told him to wear a SPF 50, <laughs> but he wouldn't listen to me. Um, have you guys ever talked to Whoa. someone who is about to murder someone or someone who has murdered someone? All the time. No, not really. Not that I know See, I, ha- I have because of, once again, growing up on Plymouth Avenue back in that area, era, uh, I told you I had lunch at North High School with a guy, just had lunch, kind of hung out. And I said, I got to get back to class. You going back to class? He goes, nah, I don't think so. I, I just don't feel like going to class. And he went from the lunch table in the lunchroom at North High School with a gun to the Clark Station on West Broadway and shot and killed the attendant for $17. So he literally 10 minutes after talking to me, he went and killed someone. So I was kind of happy that I didn't upset his lunch or whatever. But then talking to people who have killed someone, that's a weird deal. You've never had a conversation with somebody who's killed someone? I don't know. I don't think I have. It's, it's well, I mean, auto- in the war, yes. People. Yeah, no, 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 I'm talking about murder. Yeah, I'm talking about murder. Yeah, someone. no, no, it's, not to my knowledge. It's pretty interesting. One of my favorites is still, and my favorite because it's so bizarre, two guys I went to high school with got in a fight on the either the Plymouth Bridge or the Broadway Bridge over the Mississippi. I can't remember which one it was. And one guy knocked the other out, but the bridge is metal, so he thought he killed him. So he picked him up and threw him in the river. The guy wasn't dead, but he did drown. That's how he died. The guy wasn't dead when he threw him off the bridge. And then I, that guy went to prison forever, and I saw him many, many, many years later. And he was riding down Plymouth Avenue, riding a bike naked. Wait a minute. He went to prison <laughs> forever? For like 20 years. Oh, right? okay, okay. So that, was a figure, it that was a figure, figure of forever. speech. It wasn't sorry, a literal sorry. forever. It was a figure of forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a figure of forever. Thanks, Doc. But yeah, I, I mean, that. he's riding. he gets out of prison and is riding oh. down the street on a bicycle totally naked. It's like, what the you know, <laughs> goes I, on in that noggin. I've I have talked to someone who has murdered someone. Yeah. But yeah. it was a a kid, a, a classmate of our middle daughters. Oh yeah. And normal kid knew him from church. God. Was in a fight in um. It was in an a accidental. Park, in a park and cold cocked a guy. He went down. He died. Hit his head. He died. Yeah, that'll well, happen. They, we, that, no, he hit somebody, and then the guy died as a result of falling. He didn't go out, shoot him. No, yeah. he didn't I would say that's to a different. Him. Right. Yeah. He'd, but, yeah, I suppose. Okay. Julie Morgenstern is on the phone. Oh, Julie, how are you? 
fine. How are you guys? We're hanging in there. Julie, here's the deal. We got about five minutes here. Then I got to take a just a quick two minute break, and then have you back if that's okay with you. Great. Wonderful. I like Julie Morgenstern. In time to parent, the best-selling organizational guru takes on the ultimate time management challenge, which is parenting from toddlers to teens. Well, you left out the 20s and 30s, Julie. You know, it's never too late. It's true. Sometimes you have to rehabilitate once they're in their 20s. That's absolutely true. Concrete ways to structure and spend true quality time with your kids. Uh, starting out, Julie, probably should let you know that Catherine and I have two children. One of them's here. He's the uh, chief engineer on the on the show. Andy, our 31 year old son. We have a daughter uh, who's a, well. Andy, you're about to turn 32, aren't you? I am. God, you're in, in a month. About a month. I need lots of tips. Yeah, we need lots of tips on 32 year olds. We need lots of tips on 32 year olds. But uh, an example of what type of parents we are. Um, our, our beliefs together. We went and saw Christopher Robin, Disney's uh, yeah. Christopher Robin, and the movie ended. The lights came up, and my wife turned to me and said, "Are you crying?" And I said, "No," <laughs> but I actually was because the, yeah. I loved having little children and the joy that they would get from the simplest things. I absolutely loved that period. It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, parenting is the biggest, most challenging, uh, and and complex job in the world. You forgot thankless. Until they have kids of their own, and then they'll be thanking you. Uh, but um, maybe. But it's the only it. one that doesn't come with a job description. And who would ever take a job without a job description, right. especially one that changes dramatically every two to three years? And that's what you're talking about. Like yep. Maybe you had it down yep. when they were younger, but then your kids change and you have to be able to like keep up uh, so that you can stay connected. And that's really hard to do. So I did a lot of research for this book beyond my own field experience into the science to answer the very questions you're asking. How do you keep pace and stay connected at every stage and age? Yeah, because I, our, our daughter has a two-year-old two now, and she is just an emotional thing. Oh, if she's God. tired, man, she is the most emotional. Oh, kill you. You're talking you're about two. the two-year-old, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah. yes. I right. mean, it, it's, it's like, right. you know, you have to just be a master at um, distraction all of the time. And it's, sometimes you just want to say, listen, kid. Knock it off, but that just makes it worse. Yeah, yeah. It has to be okay. Let's go find. Children are purely yeah. emotional creatures. She is so emotional, and by you know, and once she gets out of that phase, she'll be into another phase, and it is. It's exhausting. And you're right. There is just no manual for this kind of stuff. Some kids, apparently, I've heard, are easy. <laughs> You've never had the experience. I don't know anyone. Yeah, that's true. I don't think it's ever that easy. But, you know, like whatever your kid's profile is or stage is, I think what's hard is that parents always feel guilty taking any time for themselves. They think all their time has to go to their job and any yes. leftover time goes to their kid. Yeah. And that does not set you up well to handle that kind of demand. Like you have a really emotional two-year-old. You need to be able to recharge your own battery in a super efficient way 
in order to be able to handle that and go the distance, right? Because your daughter's probably going bananas. Yeah, and she has another baby now, too. So it's like she's exhausted a lot. (laughs) So the book does try to change the entire paradigm and present the first job description that anyone has ever dared to write. (laughs) That's great. Do you end that job description? Do you end your job description with end other duties as assigned? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something. I actually think that that ambiguity that we've, you know, generations of parents have been living under makes it very hard to ever turn off and to know when your job is done. And I'm telling you, I found the answer. I found the answers, and there are edges. Um, Once you define and figure out, which is what the research I did was aimed at, how much time and attention do kids need to feel loved and secure? And once you get the answer to that, you can really actually, you get more time in your bank account than you ever imagined. Julie, we'll take a very, very quick break. Come right back with another 15-minute segment if you can do that. I can do that. Julie Morgenstern, Time to Parent. I'm holding the book in my hand right now. New York Times bestselling author of Organizing from the Inside Out, Time to Parent. The new book will be right back, Tom Bernard Show. John, I just got another complaint about our delivery service. Oh, not again. Yep, we have to do something about our courier service. You know, they're a reflection of us. What happened now? Well, you know that one driver that has the dog that rides with him? Uh Uh-huh. Well, when he got out of his truck to deliver our package, his dog got out and delivered, well, uh, his own package, if you know what I mean. That's it. I want you to call... Priority Courier Experts, because you know they've got more than 500 drivers. And tell them we need... A professional, reliable courier service. And make sure they have internet order entry and real-time tracking you know i had priority courier experts account rep in here about a month ago and who knows how many accounts we could have serviced better if we had just signed up and started using the twin cities largest most reliable on-call courier service what's that number because the next package is going with priority courier experts already dialing 651-748-4477 priority courier experts can we help you can you ever priority courier experts every time you call us we deliver Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Oh, really? It's a party. uh, Parenting is a definite party. No question about it. We're talking to Julie Morgenstern, Time to Parent, her latest book. Is this your fifth or sixth best-selling book? That's what I want to know. My sixth. Your sixth. Big shot. By the way. Nice. I'll get get through this, and then we'll have an entire 14-minute segment. But I love the picture of you on the back of your book. Uh, But you do look enough like Rhoda. So people would like Rhoda Morgenstern's a real person. Do they think that? I got to tell you, I met her. I met her, uh, Valerie Harper. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, once, a friend, and I was like, I was like, you have no idea, but we are siblings. Like, we really oh, yeah. believe that we, 
Rhoda Morgan Stern's sisters. Oh, that's <laughs> it's great. true. It's a great picture of you, by the way. But I just Thank I looked you. at it and went, God, she kind of looks like Rhoda Morgan Stern. That's very that very so funny. Well, you know, there's a Minneapolis connection to that because of the Mary Tyler Moore show, obviously. But right. that took, that took yeah, place in Minneapolis. Right. All, a million different things to talk about as far as this is all concerned. As a matter of fact, I, I do want to mention this, though. Julie Morgenstern is the author of five previous books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Organizing from the Inside Out, Time Management from the Inside Out, and is internationally renowned organization uh, consultant who has shared her expertise on the Oprah Winfrey Show, Today and More, which is very cool. That's, that's a great uh, that's a great little bio. I like that a lot. You, you've accomplished quite a bit. Um, how many children do you have? I have one. Well, no, you decided right that child. was it? I've hit the wall. So she was, <laughs> Is that what She happened? organized I that. Also, <laughs> I was also a single parent. So I, I was a single parent from the time she was three. And oh. I just uh, stuck with that and, um, and, and, and launched my business shortly after I got divorced. And that, seemed, that was enough for me to try to balance... Uh, primary breadwinner and a single parent. Sure. Um, but, you know, but even when I was married, I was, I wished and prayed there was a manual and I couldn't find one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, Julie, we've got a mother of how many, Cassie? <laughs> 11. <laughs> well, between my husband and I, we have a total of 11, <sighs> but. Wow. Oh, Brady bunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We are the Shrady bunch. bunch, that's for sure. Um, but some of them are adults. But we have six kids, like school-age kids, living in the home. So I don't have time to, like, not feel guilty or feel guilty. <laughs> I, 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 we, you know, when we get up in the morning, we're going nonstop until we go to bed. So yeah. usually my, my me time is me in the closet crying. Trying to <laughs> <laughs> regain my sanity, nice. yeah, because it gets it gets yeah. overwhelming, you know. I mean, you you're responsible for these little humans, and sometimes yeah. they could care less what you think or sometimes. how you're trying. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just love the blank stares I get from them when I'm trying to tell them something important, and I don't think they're hearing me at all. Well, and sometimes as a mom yeah. too, I think that you you worry so much about what what will happen if you do drop the ball with something yes. small because everything to a kid is a catastrophe. Yes, right. So if you don't do something right, you're going to pay for it big time or well, hear yes. about it for years to come. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I got two teenage girls, you know, aged girls in the home. And it's like, if I don't make sure that their outfit they want to wear Monday morning is washed, they could have a complete meltdown that morning. And, you know, because I wanted to wear that for school. And so I, you know, it's a, it's a lot to balance. But we manage. We do very well. We tag team it, Dave and I. So mm -hmm. we, <laughs> it's How a old lot. Are those, how old are those teenage girls? Um, one is one 13. One's 11. And then I do have yeah. a 16-year-old stepson, and then my oldest boy's 14, and then I have an 11-year-old, oh, and then the youngest is Max, who is six. <laughs> oh. So it's a... So I would, I would say this, as I'm listening to you, it sounds to me like I have the, uh, the sort of job description for the parent part, the raising a human part, broken down into four different activities. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like you're getting cornered in one of those, and I think you can find your way out by engaging their help. So the four parts of parenting. <laughs> do I need this? To, yeah, I think you need this. So listen, this is what we have to do to raise our kids. 
We have to provide for our kids, right? It requires working and making money and paying for things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. We have to a- arrange the logistics of our kids' lives. What school they're going to, are there clothes, you know, do they have clothes in the closet, the laundry, the cleaning, the transportation, that stuff will eat you alive if you are the sole person in your household responsible for that. Mm-hmm. And we're not done, right? And I think that's where you're stuck. Then you need to relate to your kids, which is to get to know them as human beings. That's that quality time where you're not teaching, you're just getting to know them for who they are. And then the fourth thing is teaching, which is different than relating. And if you, those spell the, the acronym PART, as in doing your part for another human. Provide, arrange, relate, teach. The provide and arrange historically take the most amount of time but they are largely invisible to our kids. Kids don't see the time, the hours you're spending on that. What they see is the time relating and teaching. Mm -hmm. So if you keep that in mind and you get help and engage, those girls should be helping get their own outfits. They're ready. Mm -hmm. They're 11 and 13. This should not be mom as the default arranger for the household because what they really want is your presence more than to service them, and they can learn that. So it's, it's just a way to sort of think about the framework and what you have to balance your time between. So I remember when my that? kids were that age, mm-hmm. um, and they were trying on clothes and throwing them in the laundry basket before they even had a chance to get <sighs> dirty. <sighs> no, I know. So I gave them the job of doing their own laundry. Yep. And why well, yeah. changed the course of my life, let me tell you. <laughs> I ha- I have been teaching um even the the boys too. I've been teaching them, you know, life skills, doing laundry, doing the dishes. Yeah. Um, you know, I I tell them all the time, I shouldn't have to tell you to clean the bathroom. When you go in the bathroom and it looks dirty, just clean it. That's yeah. what I have to do. Yeah. Nobody tells me I have to do laundry. <laughs> they won't see it. I know, and that's the thing and I'm trying to teach them that skill because I think it's very important because otherwise they're going to depend on somebody their whole lives to take care of them. And I don't right. want that also, for them. And and I think that that area of running a house is a remarkably underestimated in terms of how big that job is, how mm-hmm. time consuming right. and how complex it is. It requires big picture, strategic thinking, attention to detail, so many different skills and too often, and, and studies show this, that job falls largely to the women, even if men are getting more involved mm-hmm. as the kind of default arranger. But that work is the work of the family. It's not the work of one person. Mm-hmm. A clean house is for everyone, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that time organizing, cleaning up, putting things back where they belong is really a gift of time to every other family member. And when you don't do it, you're stealing time from other family members. Oh, that's and an awesome way of putting it. <laughs> I love the way you Julie, put things. Julie, how much of it is habit forming? I mean, truly ref- forming the habits of cleaning up and putting away and... I mean, how much of yeah. how much of what you see is critical in that realm? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's first is a mindset shift, right? This mm-hmm. is the family's work, this is the household's work, it's not any one person's, and this is the gift of time or the theft of time to each other. Get that clear. Then, you do it as a family, you sit down and like put it all on the table. What are all the functions that the household requires? 
and then you try to automate every single one of them and find the, the most efficient way to get it done, and that's the way we do it in this house, and then you build it into the habits. And it just becomes automated, automated. This is not a favor anyone's doing for each other. This is how we operate. And, it, and then it becomes a habit. But it will only become a habit if you, in your mind, stop thinking of it as your job and you're burdening anybody to do it. You're not. Well, and it, it makes you available to the whole family in ways that they really want you to be. Mm-hmm. Well, if you and what happens if you've got some one person in the house that's resistant and causes you know, I'm not doing that or I don't want to do that or I work all day so not I don't me. have to do it or not me. I've got dance class. I have dance class. I can't do it. Well, I'm, you, well you can't go to dance class until you've done this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, natural consequences. Yeah, and, it's all natural consequences. And, it's, and I actually do think that people don't realize the burden they're putting on someone else when they put dishes in the sink and don't clean them. They don't realize that that means somebody else has to, who didn't have a plan to spend 10 minutes doing the dishes, you just put something on someone else's to-do list. So I, I think when you open up the dialogue that way, kids really don't mean. It's like we sort of train them to do that by, like, caretaking, Right. I actually, and if someone's really resistant, just ask them if, you know, do they want to live in their own little corner and not have the food that you're cooking and serving? It's like they're not living in an isolated way. You know, Julie. You just make it a rule. What happens in a classroom when one kid doesn't want to do the cleanup? Teacher just says it's time to clean up. They don't get to opt out. And that's the way we need to run our houses, too, I think. Uh, When our kids were very small. My wife, mm-hmm. Catherine, is on the show. This is one of the women that's been talking to you. And, and she was a wonderful mother. Because thinking back now, um, when our kids were born, I was uh, doing a morning show. We lived about 30 miles from the radio station. I still am doing that morning show. But um, I would get up at 3.30 in the morning, get in the car by 4 o'clock to make sure I got to the radio station by about 5 a.m. Or, you know, quarter to 5, something like that. As soon as I got off the air at 10 o'clock, I then went to the airport and flew to places like Chicago to do voiceover. And I did voiceover all day from like noon to 6 at night. Sounded like a dream to me. I'd take a (laughs) a 7 o'clock flight back home from Chicago. So I was gone from 4 o'clock in the morning till about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. A lot of days. So Catherine was stuck there by, and I do mean stuck there, by the way, because Andy, our son, is here. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I did. I felt like a did. single mother. Yeah, for, absolutely. For the most yeah. part. I, I really did. Of, absolutely you did. Because I was always gone. Oh. It was unbelievable. One of, yeah. And and I understand that. And one of the things, I spoke at length to like the leading experts on child development, human development in the country. And one of them was a woman named Melissa Milkey, who's been studying family life for six decades. And she said that the biggest mistake that today's parents are making is that they think they are the one person who can provide for their kids what their kids need. Right, And whether you are a married couple with both living, you know, and, you know, you're both coming home at 6 o'clock every day or one is off traveling and one is home, you have to tap into the village. We cannot raise children alone. The job is too big. And the book kind of makes that really clear. And Melissa Milkey said if there's one thing she would say to parents is build your village. And time invested in, you 
drop kids off at school or you, 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 you get somewhere where there are other parents and then you build that village and do not feel guilty asking people for help because it's a pleasure. When you get asked to help somebody, you always feel good about it. Don't deny other people that pleasure. And that's the way to get through it. So I think even as a single parent-ish, you know, okay, he was gone, and when he came back, you needed more help, and you shouldn't, you, you know, we shouldn't try to carry the burden alone. It's too much, and we're operating on empty, right? So you need to balance between raising a human and being a human. And There, um, there was yeah. the time that I felt a little like the village idiot, speaking of the village, when I forgot the kid at the bus stop coming oh, home God. from kindergarten because oh, I was God. too busy with the other kid in the ballroom at Hardy's. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. That's very yeah. nice. Well, you okay. got it for you. One tip in the book is that before you go to bed every single night as a parent, forgive yourself and then hit the ground fresh the next morning because you're going to make a lot of That sounds good. I have to do that every night. Yeah, I do carry around a lot every of guilt. Uh, forget, yeah, guilt is it's really the worst. Yeah, it is. I, I, I feel that I wrote this book. Um, to, to accomplish three things. It, it, will say, it will give you back time. Any parent who's reading it will end up with more time on their hands from reading it rather than have more to do. They're going to have less to do. They're going to have less guilt, less guilt taking time for themselves, less guilt asking the family to help with logistics or neighbors, and they'll have more joy. And I, I tell you, there are systems you can put in place to make this much easier and really feel balanced and do everything you need to for your kids and keep yourself sustained and nourished at the same time. It's possible. You just need a little structure. And Lady, that's what the book provides. Time to parent Julie Morgenstern. Full disclosure, just 10 seconds here, Julie. Uh, I grew up a very okay. poor kid, and then I started working really, really hard and doing well. So Catherine spent about half her time raising the children because I was always gone telling me when I did get home, stop buying the kids everything. I yes. remember that. You used to yell yeah. at me all the time about that. So, Julie, you need to come back and talk more about this. You have some great, great points. I'd love to have you back as a guest. I would love to come back. And I'd invite anybody listening, and you guys too if you want, uh, you can get more information on my website, juliemorgenstern.com. And on the book page, there's an online self-assessment that will give you a how your time balance is right now, a little report and a little guidance on how to like auto-correct. And it's a companion to the book, but it, it actually stands alone as well. So um, I encourage everybody to come, take the self-assessment, and check out the book. You'll feel better about your parenting, not worse. I, I like that. It is a wonderful thing. Julie, thank you very much for your time. We'll talk soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Y'all did good. <laughs> Thank you. Time to Positive parent. reinforcement. Time, time to parent is the book. We'll talk to you, talk to you later, Tom Bernard Show. Thank you.